Thanks for your calls tonight, Castleton and Greenwood. We're playing soft rock for a busy world. I'm Delilah on B105.7. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in 5 podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. This is part two of this week because I wanted to talk about T. Swift's new single, and I also wanted to answer hotline questions. As I said on the other episode, there are some weeks when I just am not overly inspired or interested or well-versed in what's going on, and I just so don't want to talk for the sake of talking. And I kind of, the reason I don't always put the podcast out on the same day is because I kind of wait till I have something I like can't hold in any longer. Um, but when I was on Instagram Live the other night, the remedy to this, somebody pointed out that I should have a hotline. Upon revealing that my end game, my lifelong dream, is to be like a Delilah. I grew up listening to Delilah on Light 98 in Richmond, Virginia. And I would just hear her her smooth, light, gentle, yet firm voice tell everybody to love someone tonight. And maybe it's my affinity for Sleepless in Seattle. Maybe it's because I feel like she is equal parts compassionate and tough on her callers. You know, she's she's not afraid to tell you when you're wrong. She's not afraid to celebrate you when you're right. And overall, her vibe is so soothing and so caring. And of course, you if you follow Delilah, you likely remember her son tragically um, killed himself at a point in time. And I remember being very shook by that news, and I'm still shook by it. And it's hard to imagine somebody who's, you know, whose life is about helping somebody else in, in the midst of providing that help they probably needed you know a verbal hug more than anybody yet everybody was relying on her and it's just interesting and makes me a little sad she's still alive I think she's still on the air I just think she's such an icon and her name's so iconic and I don't know it's just I just think about driving through the night listening to adult contemporary radio and thinking huh I know exactly how I would answer that question or I'd like practice what I would say to the person and I don't know. I just like kind of love that hybrid brand of, you know, playing music and talking about the things going on, but also being a resource for people. I don't think she's a any sort of um, psychologist. I think she just is or is Dear Abby a psychologist? I don't know. Or any of these people in the media that give we ask for advice, like actually equipped to give advice. Who the hell knows? All I know is I certainly have no qualifications, but that never stopped me before. And um, when I'm feeling uninspired by what's going on in the world, I can always, always count on that I will be inspired and interested in whatever my listeners listeners have to say or have to ask. And when somebody brought up the hotline, I was like, that's so much more fun to hear people's voices, to play it on air, to just like have it exist. So as things come up over the week, you can call in and leave a message. You don't have to leave your name. It can be anonymous. It's very hard to discern voices. And I actually, I listened to a, a really good pop culture podcast called Who Weekly, and I love that they do this. And um, they just have people call in and say the most random stuff. And it's hysterical because so often I think you guys are funnier than me, you have better ideas and better topics than me. And I just would love to hear from you more. So always call in 312-379-9676. That's 312-379-9676. I'm going to need to look at the, uh, see if I can spell something cool with those last four digits. Um but it's also in the bio of Be There in 5 Podcast Instagram. So anyway, I guess we'll just dive right into it because I already did such a long app yesterday. And uh, 
We'll see how many we have time for. I think we had seven calls yesterday. I'll probably get through three or four. But anyway, here is the first one. Hi, Kate. This is Adrian Cooper. My question for this week is, what would your strategy be if you were a contestant on The Bachelor? Thanks. Bye. Love Adrian. I've met her in person. She came to my book signing. She is a, a mod in the Be There in Five Podcast Facebook group. And um, Adrian, thank you for calling. Thank you for your brevity yet sharp delivery. You're very prepared. I hear a lot of. If, I would. I stumble when I call into things. I've maybe called into radio like once or twice. I would never call into Watch What Happens Live. It, people, they can't. They physically cringe at the awkwardness of people being people talking at the same time as Andy. And then there's like these stalled periods of time and they're on live TV and then you waste your big moment. And it's to, and then everybody flatters the guests that they're not going to ask a question to before they ask the question, therefore not leaving enough time for the question. I don't know. Long story short, impressed by your delivery. And um, good question. Okay. If I were on the bachelor, what would my strategy be? I mean, I think, well, okay. So the most important thing here is, your strategy is not to win. Your strategy is to be second or third. Worst case, fourth. You got to get to hometowns and you've got to be in it to win it up until hometowns. Then you pull back. You pull it back a tilly. You, you get a little unsure. You make them shake in their boots, therefore desire you even more. And while still making yourself extremely likable in the talking heads, while being, you know, the entire time you're friends with the girls, you're, you seem like a girl's girl when you're in the house and you don't, it's important to not overly divulge your personal details to the girls. Like don't tell them you have a romantic moment. Don't tell them when you kiss, whatever. Like when you're around the girls, pretend that he thinks you're a bridge troll. And when you're around him, make him think that he's the love of your life. Because if the girls aren't threatened by you, they'll love you and you could be like the funny girl and like the fun class clown. Like I, I always think of like Alexis, the dolphin slash shark costume and she wore hoops and she was from Jersey and she was funny and cute and she's beautiful and like a great catch, but like was more of like seemed to the girls like a comedic um, casting that kind of stuck around a little bit longer than maybe Ben would have even kept her, but she and Ben didn't have a strong relationship. So it's almost like you have to have that pairing of like, you know, be a fun-loving type to the girls, but have the intensity that, like, a Lauren B. had with Ben Higgins. And I'm talking about Ben Higgins' season, I think, because I really like him. I find him handsome and endearing. And also, I think that season had really great girls. And that was the first season of girls that just widely became mega-influencers that, like, still are. Um, but anyway, so the biggest thing is you don't want to win. So, and you should be there to make friends. Honestly, I'd only be there to make friends because I think those it'd be so fun to make those friends. And a lot of those friends are probably going to be like pretty good influencers and they can invite you to like the revolve around the world parties and stuff. Even if you yourself aren't going to be hawking the tummy teas and sugar bear hair gummies. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's tricky. Cause I guess you have to start at the beginning when I got there, would I do a gimmick? It's hard to say because I have, I have such an aversion to cheese. I love to watch a cringe, hate to be a part of one. Part of me is like, okay, historically in my life, it is never, it's, it's always, you know, it's always been a problem for me if anybody tries to pick me up. I don't like when throughout life, when like guy friends have like tried to affectionately 
pick me up. Like I can be swung around like some Polly Pocket and then they realize I'm heavier than maybe I look. And then, you know, I, I only get a few inches off the ground. It's like this weird sandbag effect of like, oh, okay. See what we're working with, batting down the hatches. And, um, you know, I, it's no commentary on my weight or my self-image. It's just like I am tall. And I think people don't realize that that adds like weight. And, um, you know, next to like a tiny, like in shape girl, that's five one, like I've got 40 plus pounds on her. You know what I mean? It's just like, it, you might, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I therefore hate when people pick me up all that to say, maybe my shtick upon entry would be to just get out of the limo and barrel towards them and do the toddler jump and just see if they can withstand it. You know, if the big tree falls hard, maybe we laugh, maybe we giggle, maybe it's a small concussion. I go with him in the ambulance. I take care of him. He forgets what even happens. And, you know, I kind of win before it even starts. If he does catch me, we're all the more compatible. I should caveat, too, that in this scenario, am I um, doing this for publicity? And am I still with Gregor if this was if I was single? Because I have thought about both scenarios and I have cleared it with my husband that I could go on. I probably would be one of those first people that said, like, I couldn't kiss him for, like, my religion or something. But really, it was just because I'm married and, like, I'm going to wait for that scandal to break till much later. Um, but then have a sob story that kind of justifies it. So, yeah, I guess I would barrel toward them. Or, you know, maybe I'd do a traditional icebreaker. Like, I'd, you know, kind of waft gracefully toward them in my gown. And upon seeing them, I halt I do a full 180 turn cross my hands over my chest and trust fall into that person and see if they catch me and if they do you know there's a lot of room for puns there if they don't maybe I get the concussion and then they feel obligated to come in the ambulance with me and you know again quality time is the name of the game so I think an icebreaker could be kind of fun I think that um you know the key to beyond have you need an entry that's like interesting and memorable but not cringe-tastic though i never forgot Lindsay with the with with the um wedding dress on sean Lowe's season she got in second place talk about a person who didn't want any influence she really fell off the map i think she like moved back to oklahoma lives a normal life and good for her um but even Catherine, the winner started a paper company called loco and uh they did dancing with the stars they did wife swap i mean people really can milk this if they do it right. And people that don't, I, I, it's like, I don't know if I respect her. I think that they're insane because I just know how hard it is to ever even get that kind of platform. And if you can get it, you might as well while it's hot and whether you use it or not fine, but at least like keep it there. Um, but the other thing I think is important is you need to have like a, like kind of a modern catchphrase, um, you know, what was Becca's? Like, let's do the damn thing. But that was after she was already named Bachelorette. Like, I kind of thought that Hannah, hold on, my husband just texted me asking if I need anything from Benny's Beverage Depot, and I do. So, BRB. Okay, so I, I feel like I'm recording more of a Patreon. This is like a very strange episode, and also I'm already rambling for one question. Um, But I think the reason Hannah B, you know, beyond her being sweet and charming and all of those things. Um, be, be, the reason she's Bachelorette is because of that super uncharacteristically confident and motivating speech she gave him in the limo when 
Um, oh my gosh, who was the bachelor when the person Colton sent her home? And she was like, I will not allow myself to not be chosen every day. Everybody was like, oh, slow clap, feminist icon. And I was kind of like, that was a very live, laugh, love thing to me. But okie doke. It was very, um, I don't know. It's like there's that sex in the city level of cheese that is. At a time, I really liked it and put it on my buddy info or away message and like used it for inspo for all my relationship woes. But now I watch Sex and the City and I'm like, oh, my God, this is so cringy. It's like it works at a time and at an age. And she is only 24. And at that age, I probably did have a sign in my room that said women should be two things, classy and fabulous. Regrettably, regrettably. Um, But yeah, so... Hannah had the thing with being chosen. Becca had let's do the damn thing. I kind of feel like, you know, not that I need to be like waboom, but I do bet he sold some decent merch. Uh, you know how like uh, Tracy Jordan's wife on 30 Rock, the uh, fake reality show episodes they did that were so perfect. She was like, it's my way till payday. I kind of want something like that, but I need to think of something, you know, that promotes my stuff but also is vague enough that could have, I could be applied to anything. Like if I just constantly was like, twinkle, twinkle, bitches. And it's people like, what does that mean? And I couldn't even tell them. You know, I just realized I might bring a party sub. Like, a, <laughs> if you just walked out of the limo with a six foot plus submarine sandwich. I don't know. That would kind of win my heart. Thoughtful. Gorgeous. Perfect for any party, any occasion. And it would just show me that, wow, they, we really do have like a chance together because they eat bread. And as I'm finding in my marriage, having, you know, both being like kind of on and off of keto, life is just so much less fun meal planning wise without carbs. It's like, oh, what meat do we want to eat on its own tonight with a small, tepidly prepared side that we're not excited about? Because like, a burger is so exciting with a bun. Without a bun, it becomes a ball of meat. And it's still good. It's just not great. And it doesn't really inspire me to like be making sides or anything because I'm already coming from a place of scarcity and not abundance. So I've just been really struggling with meal planning lately. Totally, totally relevant to what we're talking about, by the way. But anyway, moving on. I should go to the next question. Adrian, thank you for asking. I don't know if that helped. In summary... I would pretend like I wanted to win until the very last minute. Have a small Becca Tilly level meltdown at hometowns, supplemented by my family, who I would tell in advance how to act, but also just in general, my parents would be skeptical enough about the entire thing that they would come across pretty cold, and I know my dad would not give permission. And also be hard because we'd go not to my hometown, but where my parents live, which is a very small Stars Hollow-like town in North Carolina. And if you listen to this podcast for a while, you do know that last year I had an incident where I was caught open carrying a sangria out of a wine shop that I wasn't supposed to be. And I went in the bathroom and changed out the cups and I got called out, like walking out of the bathroom publicly. And then later I had to go back into that bathroom because it was the only one open. I was wearing a romper. And as we know, a romper in a public restroom do, do not a good combo make. And when you drop trowel, you're full nude in a public restroom. And I likely because of the two sangrias I illegally opened, carried out of the store previously and got in trouble for in trying to go back to the bathroom under the radar, in dropping trowel and going full nude in the restroom, I forgot to lock the door and 
some dude, old, old man did walk in on me who was there earlier when I got called out. And I don't know his relationship to the store, but I can never show my face in there again. So long story short, I don't really want that to be my legacy. And uh, we'd have to find something like else to do in the woods or something. Maybe I'd like take him crabbing. I don't know. I, I, I don't have enough like signature shtick with my personality to have like things I would do with them. Like, will we go t- like taste test ranches? Like, that's so lame. And I also feel like, you know, I, God love her, love Stassi, but I feel like her obsession with ranch is kind of like cheapened like the rest of us because I don't love a hidden valley. I, you know, you, we've talked about this. Like, I need dilly. I need buttermilk base. I need it made with the packet. I, I don't mess around with prepackaged shelf stable bullshit. And uh, that is what I fear that so many ranch lovers of the world are getting typecasted into is like, we're okay with that. And I just think we need to be, you know, Rachel Hollis rising above shelf stable ranches and encouraging people to make them from scratch again. Am I losing my mind? <laughs> okay. Moving on to the next cue. Hi, Kate. My name is Jenna. Um, I am just, calling for a little bit of advice. I have recently um, been dumped. I was with a guy for nine months and we were fostering a puppy together and it's just been a really tough summer. So I'm just asking for a little advice, maybe some top five Taylor Swift breakup songs to help me get through this sad, lonely summer or just any breakup advice in general. Keep up with the great work. Thanks for all you do. Bye. Jenna. Oh my gosh. I just want to give you a hug. Um, that's the worst. I'm very sorry. I know that uh, when you're in the thick of it, it's very hard to see the other side. It's very hard to see the upside. And especially with fostering a puppy and whatnot and sharing a connection, I think that just makes things even harder. And I don't say that to make it worse or not provide solace, but similar to how uh, Dorinda said to Bethany on the Real Housewives of New York, like when she was uh, grieving Dennis's passing, Dorinda was like, this is bad. Like, this is bad. You can say it. This is bad. And I think my first piece of advice would be to, like, let yourself wallow. Give yourself a minute to to mourn the loss of something, to process it in full, and to get to a place where you can even just begin to move on. And by move on, I mean one foot in front of the other one day at a time. Don't expect these sweeping changes because it really does just take time. And I think that a lot of times your friends, you know, will want you to go out and take shots and like live your best life, but, and like go hit on dudes. But for a lot of us, that's more depressing. Like wallowing can be an important release. And it's important to focus on your own healing and to find new ways to channel your energy. And that's kind of my second point is, I mean, I'm no like Adele, but I do think that for anybody, regardless of being creative or not, I mean, look at her, her breakup album, but just like an emotional creative soul can, can produce great things from tapping into those deep emotions. And um, I think that sometimes in despair, you're able to access parts of your brain that you wouldn't otherwise and I always think back to, um, I think it was graffiti I saw when I lived in New York and I wrote it in one of my journals and it said, um, I feel, it said, I feel the most alive when my heart is breaking. And it always stuck with me because I'm a very emotional person who's been dumped a lot. And 
throughout that time period in my life, I realized that some of my clearest thoughts and best work came from times when I was in a darker place personally. And I just really believe that the time we spend alone and the time we spend healing is ultimately the time, if you so choose, that that you can spend reinventing. Whether you channel the unrest into something creative, whether you channel it into improving your friendships, your familial relationships, into a new hobby, into service, there's something very powerful and transformative about times when you feel that way. And don't be scared to lean into it. Like, don't be scared to just feel it. I just think that's what I've, the biggest thing I've learned in life is really just like listening to yourself, your gut and doing what you want. And when things feel unnatural, it's okay to push back. But at the same time, you know, you do want to be mindful of, you know, too much wallowing if it's been too long or whatever. I just mean like, I think sometimes people want to get over it so badly that they kind of compartmentalize and never fully get over somebody and end up carrying a lot of the baggage into their next relationship, carrying the resentment, carrying the mistrust. And I think that there's just a way you can give, even if you don't have closure with the person, you can almost find it within yourself in terms of, okay, what did this person mean for my life at this time? There is a purpose and a meaning for everything. Through this relationship, I learned X, Y, Z. Through this relationship, I know what I do and don't want. And these are those things. And just kind of anchor the experience in your own heart as being meaningful, regardless of how it ended. And as much as you can try to get to a point where you're carrying something remotely positive away from it, I think that's incredibly important. And I just think to be so grateful that you got out of a relationship that wasn't going to ultimately work. I've seen so many people marry the wrong guy. And then as they evolve and grow older and gain a stronger sense of self, they, they can't even identify with the, the woman who settled for less than they dreamed of 10 years ago. And how awesome is it that you're able to know yourself well enough now to not make that mistake? And I know that the relationship didn't end on your own accord, but the fact that even just from what you said, you're, it sounds like you're accepting it. It sounds like it's over and you're trying to move on. And I think that, I just think that even though you feel weak, you have to remember that there's nothing more difficult. There's nothing stronger than having the gumption to move on from the wrong relationship and to not be like could have, would have, should have not be like he's the one and trying to get him back and thinking through like all the things you maybe said or did wrong. The hard thing is being able to move on and learn from our experiences And to have the ability and the foresight that, you know, no no time is ever wasted. It's all an integral part of your story. The easy thing to do is to be in denial, is to get married to the wrong person, is to tell yourself something's right because it's what everyone else is doing, to ignore signs that the other person's not as into it as you are. Those are all things people can do very easily because it is so scary to end a relationship, to walk away, to start over. But in doing this and in moving forward and in just taking it a day at a time and trying to put your energy elsewhere and to focus on your friends and family slowly but surely over time, you'll feel better. And there's no like one direct way to do that. There's no formula. 
you're not going to, it's not going to be perfect and you're going to feel bad some days and good some days. And it's fine if it ebbs and flows. It's not, it's not necessarily uh, linear. And um, I just think you have to remember that you can't drive yourself crazy thinking you need all the answers, thinking it has to be one way. And I don't know how old you are, but every time something goes wrong, I'm 31 now. And I always think back on myself 10 years ago. And I think about how grateful I am that she's not making, you know, 21 year old me is not making decisions for me today that she, you know, had the ability to realize to hedge, you know, her bets on herself to not make decisions based on other people and to just trust that something better was coming along than, you know, she could have planned for herself because my entire life has been absolutely nothing I planned and I wouldn't change that for a second. So, you know, whatever you're worried about in terms of your life, your relationships, whatever you see yourself doing 10 years from now, I guarantee you she's got it covered. And she's going to be glad you didn't have it all figured out because it's so much better to figure things out as you evolve, as life throws things at you to adapt and be nimble in real time and to just be able to meet new people, take new opportunities, be constantly reinventing yourself and to be enjoying and relishing in your time alone because that independence, that time you get to spend with yourself is so, so invaluable because once you meet somebody and you will, it you're never alone again, which is so beautiful, but it's also it's for me, I'm, I'm weirdly so grateful that I was so single for so long. Cause I think a lot of my friends weren't. And I think that I had a lot of useful self-discovery within that time. So anyway, that's a really rambly way of saying that go easy on yourself, let yourself feel badly, channel your energy elsewhere, spend time with people that love you. Don't put pressure on yourself to have the answers one day at a time, one foot in front of the other. Some days can be worse than others and that's okay. Just trust that over time you'll feel better slowly but surely and that this is the right thing and as far as um breakup songs go i i mean gosh i really do love an fu anthem i mean well here's the the tricky part is some of mine are cliches because when i was going through like my core getting dumped years i was you know in the height of the kelly clarkson since you've been gone behind these hazel eyes era which was very cathartic, but now I fear it's cliche. Um, I, I think I have a playlist on Spotify that I'm looking through in real time. I do love Beyonce's Irreplaceable. To the left, to the left. I do love You Ought to Know. I love Never Ever by All Saints. I love Shout Out to My Ex by Little Mix. I love You Don't Own Me. Not the version by Grace and g Easy, but the version specifically by Goldie Hawn and Diane Keaton. The way you can download this is you Google... YouTube to MP3. You go to YouTube, you type First Wives Club, you don't own me. Copy paste the link into the YouTube to MP3 link, download it as an MP3, add it to your iTunes library. Bada bing, bada boom. You can really do that without a YouTube video. P.S. Not to provide you a legal advice, but sometimes we just need things that we can't buy in a normal format. Um, I really like Bees in the Trap, Nicki Minaj. I love uh, Boss Ass Bitch. I love Anything Could Happen. I like Golding. I love you know, anything from Greatest Showman, This Is Me is always makes me feel better. Any Man of Mine by Shania Twain is a must. I think that, I'm trying to think if there's any important Mariah Carey songs. I don't know if any of them are like, go me. I love Stay by Lisa Loeb. <laughs> I love <laughs> Goodbye Earl. 
I mean, and now I'm just like naming every song I've ever liked, but I'm trying to think of ones that like really motivate me and make me feel like, yeah, I got this. I mean, Survivor, Destiny's Child, very important. I'm not above like leaning into the sadness at times. A little Unbreak My Heart, Tony Braxton might feel good. Oh my gosh, there's a song by Allure called All Cried Out. I ended a podcast with it once. It's so good. It feels so good. Listen to it. You might be too young to remember it on the radio, but it's it's hugely underrated. I also need to end this like immediately, so I will. Um, but I just will. Uh, uh, also, you did not ask me for any of that. You asked me for Taylor Swift specifically songs. I also will like to say that like Buttons and Don't You by the Pussycat Dolls make me feel a lot more attractive than I actually am. And um, any song I, like I love some of the 90s rock, too, like. I love to feel really sad to Sister Hazel Champagne High and just like enjoy being sad because that song's about like just drinking a lot when you're getting over something. And it's like, where will I be when I stop wondering why? And I just think there's something very beautiful about leaning into the way you feel and not always being like to the left to the left. Um, and I also love like Let Her Cry, Hootie and the Blowfish, anything by the Goo Goo Dolls, anything by Mumford and Sons. I mean, Maya, Case of the X. <laughs> what a classic. What a classic song about exes. Um but anyway, I think that the Taylor Swift songs, I think you have to be careful here because there's angry Taylor, there's reflective Taylor, there's I've moved on Taylor. Throughout her catalog, it, there's a lot of different songs that pertain to the breakup category. But depending on your mood, you need to be mindful of the emotion that you're going to feel listening to it. So if I were you... I would go, mm, okay, I'm actually, I am going to approve all too well, because while it can make you over-process because it's so perfect and sensory and detailed, and I, I, it's, it's weird, like I just get sick of every song ever, but somehow that one gets more dynamic over time, but I, well, you know how like, is it It's a Wonderful Life when they're like, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. I kind of think with All Too Well, it's like every time someone sings so casually cruel in the name of being honest, a person gets a small chunk of their self-worth back. Because when you sing that song, I don't know, you feel it. It means a lot to you. It's universal. It's like, how can a song be so specific to her own, the details of her own private experience that we all can like smell the crisp fall air and taste the maple lattes and feel the coziness of a, you know, a counterpart's flannel shirt and lament the loss of our belongings at their home or their sisters and you know a crisp fall day with the windows down somebody looking over at you and there's just so much I mean the refrigerator light I know I've talked about this a million times I think that's like one of the most brilliant lights lines of all time because I have so many memories in the refrigerator light because I am a late night snacker so anyways I do approve all too well um but for, for the most part I would go older Taylor New Taylor is less angry and more reflective. So, you know, it might feel good, like throwback wise, just to, you know, picture to burn, should have said no. Um, you know, let's not do better than revenge. I feel like as a person who respects the hell out of Rip Girls, I don't want to do that to Camilla Bell um, forever and always. I mean, was I out of line? Did I so say something way too honest, make you run and hide like a scared little boy? I mean, hell yeah. The story of us. I tell you I miss you, but I don't know how. I've never heard silence quite this loud. Are you kidding me? How old was she when she wrote that? I've never heard silence quite this loud. Brilliant. Dear John. Oh my God. Dear, so this is an example of a song where she's sad, but she's also 
making sure to tell herself how well she's going to do and how she will come out of the situation winning. So she kind of recounts all of the bad times, but of course then blows our minds with, I took your matches before you could catch me. So don't look now. I'm shining like fireworks over your sad, empty town. I mean, are you kidding me? Between, you know, shining like fireworks over your sad, empty town and someday she'll be living in a big old city. Seems like Taylor got over her breakups by imagining herself in a booming metropolis, in which case she did move to New York and buy an entire block in Tribeca. So jokes on everyone else. I do think that like then after those, you kind of get to a middle ground of like, you know, you can look fondly on it. Maybe like a little bit of missing someone. Like, Wildest Dreams is so beautiful. The way I loved you is great. Clean. Clean is like a full circle recovery moment, but it's not upbeat. I just think it's it's beautiful. But, you know, I really, really would steer clear of the last kisses, of the teardrops, of the back to Decembers, of the white horses. I just think, you know, those are... She's such a good songwriter that the ones where she's still sad or still trying to, like, process or recover from something are just a, li- a little... They tug on the heartstrings a little too closely. But maybe that's just me. I know, like, at at a point I should be numb to these, but I actually don't listen to those songs that much because I'm not always in the mood for them. But when I do, like, at, at, you know, a moment at night, like, Last Kiss comes on Random Shuffle and I have headphones in and I, like, really hear, like, the words and her voice and, like, the way she's singing it. I have all, I've been a lifelong admirer of... Because uh, I love your handshake, meeting my father. I love how you walk with your hands in your pockets. How you kiss me when I was in the middle of saying something. There's not a day. Don't miss those rude interruptions. What? Are you kidding me? I feel like I am on the pavement. That July 9th, the beat of your heart. Is it? At, was it at 1.58 a.m.? Or was it like uh, the 1.58 a highway? I don't remember that part anyway. God, that sounds good. But don't listen to it is my point. <laughs> Anyways, Jenna. Love you so much. I hope somewhere in that like 15 minutes, there was something you could take away, but you're going to be okay. Nay, you're going to be way better off. And I look forward to hearing your future dinner party anecdote about this very important time that you spent alone and that you spent wondering, which ultimately led you to the very right place at the right time where you found yourself in a much more desirable situation with somebody that understands you, values you, and is your equal. Because I think that we all, you know, when you find the right relationship, you can't help but want to write a thank you note to every single guy who was never interested in you because they are the ones that ultimately open doors that you maybe wouldn't have at the time in being a bit unrequited and eventually allowed you to get to a place where you're much, much happier. So while I'm very sorry you're feeling this way right now and that you're experiencing a loss of sorts. I'm very excited to see what's ahead for you, and I so appreciate you calling and entrusting advice in me, who, you know, sometimes I feel like nobody asked my relationship advice because I've been out of the game for a little bit, but given that I've, you know, felt like I'm a million years old since I was like 10 and wrote in 12,000 moleskin notebooks to get through breakups, I still feel very much can access them. And even though times are different, technology is different, I do feel like the emotions are so largely the same and I can really understand. So anyway, next question. Hey, Kate, um, self-proclaimed huge Backstreet Boy fan here. And my mind was blown when you brought up that drowning is the same sound as O-Town's All or Nothing. So since then, I've been wondering your take on the best boy band of the 90s, um, TRL, drama, all of that stuff. Um, 
just your thoughts on who is the best and why. Thank you. Wow, this is a great question. Very in my wheelhouse. And I have not done a real boy band deep dive since the episode, like episode six, maybe. And we're like on 69 now. LOL. Um, as <laughs> you think of from the last podcast, not two podcasts ago, the one where we talked about high school, the person whose grandma got their, them a shirt that said hustler 69. <laughs> so good. <laughs> um, oh, grandma, classic grandma. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I agree as it relates to drowning and O-Town's all or nothing. It's shocking. And it's, they're, they're. I think Drowning is one of Backstreet Boys' lesser discussed songs. All our, O-Town doesn't have enough songs to have, like, over-underrated songs. They just have, like, songs. I'm pretty sure they weren't album artists, but, you know, outside of uh, Liquid Dreams, All or Nothing, and We Fit Together, didn't do much else. But Backstreet, Drowning is, like, a really beautiful, intense love song that isn't as cheesy as some of their earlier stuff. But as you know, or may know, may or may not know, which I've discussed before, I, I consider myself to be, when as it relates to the Battle of NSYNC versus BSB, I am a Backstreet Girl. They were my gateway drug to boy bands. It's funny because I'm so not attracted to any of them as an adult, but I was very into Brian Luttrell, very into Nick Carter. But as an adult, I'd be more into Kevin because I really respect those brows, that bone structure, and just his overall unassuming demeanor. Um, but I do, I don't know, like... I, I still, I don't know. I was obsessed with NSYNC too, but just not in the same way. I just think, I, I still think Backstreet Boys music is, is way, way better. And I can't believe that nobody from that really had a Justin Timberlake style solo career. I, I mean, besides the heavy hitters, I also think they have, they both have a handful of these like token songs off their albums that weren't singles that sound kind of similar and are still really good. Backstreet Boys had song, uh, one song was called We've Got It Going On. Jam on because Backstreet's got it. Come on now, everybody. We've got it going on for you or something. And then get down, get down and move it all around. You're the one for me. You're my ecstasy. You're the one I need. Um, and then NSYNC had a song called Here We Go. Here we go. One more time, everybody feeling fine. Here we go now. Yes, yes, yes. Here we go. NSYNC has got the flow. And then I also loved bring in the noise, bring down the house. I forget. Anyway, I'm not going to speak for you. But anyway, not to be, that was in Smart House, but that should, is not to be confused with Slam Dunk the Funk by Five, who sings, who was an outstanding one-hit wonder boy band that sings When the Lights Go Out, one of my favorite songs, um, that I think I, the first time I played music on the podcast, I played When the Lights Go Out because their band name's Five and obviously be there in Five. But I digress. They are nowhere close to the clout of NSYNC or Backstreet Boys. I think for me, one of the most, the reason those boy bands are so important to me, see, and I grew up in Boys to Men with them too, because I was a real big Boys to Men fan and a real big Hanson fan, but those are very different types of boy bands. BSB and NSYNC are very similar. They're almost like classic boy band with choreography. You have to separate out the ones who don't do choreography and who play instruments like Hanson. And then you have to separate out um, kind of the more R&B style of like boys to men, all for one, or Blackstreet. I might even throw like a B2K in there that weren't like cheeseball boy bands. I actually think they made really great music. Some had bigger careers than others. So I guess what I'm saying is I classified as like heavy. Okay, I'm not going to say heavy hitters. Well, no. Okay. Mm-mm, sorry. <laughs> I'm really trying to figure this out. I think I classify them as like household names because you can be a household name without having a lot of hits, right? So we have Backstreet Boys, we have NSYNC, 
we have 98 Degrees, we have O-Town, and we have LFO. I think that those five are bands people really do recognize the names of and can at least name a song from. But those bands are all boy bands that, like, do the choreography, like, the, you know, wearing tank tops, the, like, singing and, like, with their hand on their chest and, like, the pointing on the beach. And, you know, they're they're pretty predictable. Hanson, you know, they were all about the melodies. They were all about the music. They were never really in it for the chicks. I mean, when I watched their documentary, that truly should have should have been, like, Sundance, Tribeca, Venice Film Festival-worthy, Tulsa, Tokyo, in the middle of nowhere— it helped me understand how serious they were about their craft. And I remember them going to Jakarta and just being, you know, swarmed by uh, thousands and thousands of, of Indonesian fans. And they were they were cool as cucumbers and just really wanted to make it more about where's the love. It's not enough. It makes the world go round and around. They're really obsessed with the message. Parents followed them closely. They were really bonded brothers. I don't know. I just don't th- think they were in it for like the, you know... The digital get down to 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 quote one of InSync's super inappropriate cyber sex non singles off of one of their albums. I think that was InSync. Um, so household names: BSB, InSync, Ninety Degrees, Oton, LFO. Then I have like outstanding, more R and B focused male groups like Boys to Men, All for One, Blackstreet, B Two K. That. I mean, it's like Boys to Men kind of needs to be their own category for me. Well, no, because I all for one sang those two John Michael Montgomery songs, I swear, and I can love you like that, which I love. But after that, not really familiar with their catalog. Blackstreet, I like the way you work it. No diggity, no diggity. After that, not super familiar. B2K had bump, 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 and also had Omarion, who did separate out as, separate out as a solo artist. But his only song was "There's an Ice Box Where My Heart Used to Be," and lyrically, that just you know. Never really did it for me, um, but it's kind of so bad, it's hilarious. So all that to say, the, probably the more important distinction here, if we're talking like cheesy choreographed pop boy bands, is to do the household names and the non-household names. So the non-household names are the ones that like true, you know, 90s, early 2000s diehards would know, you know, but they had one song. They didn't really get on the map in a more meaningful way. You'd probably hear somebody say it and remember it, but you wouldn't know it off the top of your head. And these, of course, are bands like Soul Decision of Faded Fame. When I get you all alone, I'm going to take off all your clothes. Ain't nobody going to interrupt my game. Ever since you've been hanging around, I've been trying to figure out what I can say to you to get some play. Hey, hey, can we do what we did last night again? Baby, you and I be better friends. Don't you think it's time you and I went a bit further? Oh, yeah. Every night when we say goodbye, I can tell looking in your eyes. I'm wondering why you and I have we hit it. Can we get it on? Um, you know, it's a real anthem of coercion that I now am not comfortable with, but I think we all can acknowledge we jammed to it at the time. I did not, when I'm, (laughs) when I'm talking about the songs, I try to sing them in my head. I don't mean to like slam poetry to you, Faded by Soul Decision, but without doing that, I won't remember what I'm talking about. Um, BB Mac, I'd put in this category, Back Your Baby, Miss You Want You Need You So. I would put, um, Take That in that category. This is... I believe where Robbie Williams got his start of, uh, you know, obviously of Angel's fame. He and Taylor Swift did perform that song on the Reputation World Tour and on the uh, Netflix special. It also was covered by Jessica Simpson rather poorly. You know, I just I still I I know and I know Danny Pellegrino is a true scholar as it relates to Jessica Simpson. And I kind of forgot to ask him when we were podcasting. 
when things went from, you know, th this ethereal, beautiful, powerful voice to this, you know, utterly malfunctioning, guttural, screaming mess, because it's at some some point between, you know, I want to love you forever. Boy, I think that I'm in love with you, etc. She transitioned to like literally screaming at us. Like there's this part in Angels where like she's like, <laughs> I'm not going to try to do it. it I, I honestly, it gives me strep throat listening to it. I it, it's so it's so scratchy. It's 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 so not from the diaphragm. It is straight from the throat. And I yeah, it's it's tough to listen to. But anyway, Robbie Williams got a start in a band called Take That and their most famous song, I think, at least in the States, is called Back for Good. I'll play. I, actually, I'll play a little bit of this one for you because I feel like this is one people forget. But when they hear it, they're like, oh, yeah, duh. Maybe I'll, I'll try and find it and play it for the outro. But anyway, so, yeah, I guess I was just I guess together could fall in this category, even though they technically are not a real band. <laughs> it was MTV like did a par boy band parody. Um, speaking of Andy Samberg did a, mo a parody movie of like Justin Bieber, basically. And it's called like something never stopped never stopping crap what's it called it's actually really funny and i think kind of under the radar but anyway um the parody together had the songs of course you plus me equals us i know my calculus it says you plus me equals us and they also had say it don't spray it i want the news not the weather um r-a-p-q-t one of their members did sadly pass away as did two members of lfo so one the uh, the brown haired guy more recently, but Rich Cronin was back in 2011. Very sad. Um, so anyway, all that to say, I don't really know what my point is, other than just to tell you how I like divide up the groups of my head of like heavy hitters, household names, important one hit wonders that aren't household names, R and B groups, and then just you know a few brothers playing playing their instruments. And I guess long story short, Hanson is the only one in that category. And I feel like I wouldn't have made that category in my head if I didn't have another example. I should also clarify, New Kids on the Block is a little bit um, like I don't I didn't get into boy bands until probably like 96. And I feel like NKOTV was kind of like starting to be over then. So I was kind of in like the second wave of boy bands. Um, I know there's like, you know, the Youngstown and the Westlifes and the Dream Streets and whatever. And to me, those are kind of like. I don't know, I, I feel like those those are the bands that would like pop onto Disney and they really like wanted me to worship them because they had all the, you know, all of the, 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 the trappings of a quintessential swoon worthy boy band. But it was always like, and now here's Youngstown with the, the hit song from the Inspector Gadget soundtrack. And I was like, okay, I'm good. Here's Westlife from the 102 Dalmatian soundtrack. And I just, I never needed it. Um, I did like a hybrid of a bigger boy band, though, with a Disney movie, i.e. 98 Degrees song, True to Your Heart, from the Mulan soundtrack. Speaking of 98 Degrees, I do feel like they had a lot of really good, super romantic songs that were hugely misleading to a young woman, thinking that that's how men talked would talk to me. But they aren't like, you just don't never hear anybody in adulthood be like, oh my god, I'm a huge... 98 degrees fan like what would you even call yourself like i'm a huge degreaser 98er lush hay girl hay i'm a big thermometer i don't know there's really nothing there um and i've said it once i'll say it again justice for jeff timmons because like everybody 98 degrees has been on dancing with the stars besides him unless we forget vanessa then manilo now lachey's 
infamous photos uh, with Lindsay Lohan where they were like holding knives to their necks in like a weird RV. Uh, you know, drugs do some crazy things, but I feel like we've really as a society forgotten Vanessa Manillo's involvement in all of it. But, uh, you know, I liked 98 Degrees until I, Nick was kind of a jerk to Jessica on Newlyweds. But watching Newlyweds as an adult, I realized she is insufferable. Um, I, it's so hard to believe how young she was and how it, like, ill-equipped she was to do anything. But, you know, she's charming as always. And look who's laughing now. She's like a billion-dollar shoe empire somehow, despite all of the residual inventory being at Marshall's. So I don't know how much of a cut she's getting. But anyway, 98 Degrees had, like... Invisible Man, they had um, The Hardest Thing, I Do Parentheses Cherish You, they had um, a, a real bop with Mariah Carey, Thank God I Found You, they had My Everything, um, what's the one, there's one that's really similar to O-Town's We Fit Together, oh, Give Me Just One Night, Parentheses Una Noche, I love that song, that didn't get very far on the charts, I don't really think anything did besides Invisible Man, I Do Cherish You, and maybe My Everything, but, you know, I just don't ever hear anybody like going to a 90 degrees, 98 degrees like reunion tour where people like pass out over Backstreet Boys and NSYNC doesn't tour anymore because Justin's not going to do that. It didn't when they did their like VMA reunion with Justin, did they, did they come out on the Super Bowl? I forget. I don't remember. Um, when they did, did that with Justin at the VMAs, I just felt like there were a lot of, a lot of like, you know, knees that hadn't done choreography in a while like a lot of potential for like a, a cash torn meniscus with like the wrong head tilt and slide to the left and they just seemed considerably older and less boy bandy and no discrimination against age it's just like i think backstreet has been you know they've kept touring and like doing their thing for a while but i think when justin went off in sync just kind of you know joey fatone's got other stuff going on i mean look at uh look at chris kirkpatrick i i'm sure you know, he's doing something other than inspiring Tom Sandoval's hair from season four of Vanderpump Rules. Couldn't tell you what J.C. Chazé is doing. We've got Chris, we've got J.C., we've got Justin, we've got Joey. Who am I missing? Oh, no. Oh, my God, Lance Bass, who's, like, actually, weirdly, probably the most famous outside of J.T. God bless him for doing the Lou Perlman documentary. He is, like, so relevant, and I see him everywhere. I don't really, doesn't he, he and Jax Taylor, from also from Vanderpump Rules, are starting, like, a mixer brand or, like, a ready-to-drink alcohol brand. He also officiated uh, Jax and Brittany's wedding. I mean, I, I feel like he had a, a, Chris Jenner officiated Lance Bass's wedding. I mean, he's around. So, all that to say, you know, I guess I really just don't know what Chris Kirkpatrick and J.C. Chazé are up to, but I do think J.C. had an outstanding voice. And he was, InSync overall was better looking than Backstreet, but Backstreet just tore me apart lyrically. There was, it was kind of, um, it, the, the Backstreet's very, was very hopeless. Everything, it was so intense. It was like, it, it was, it, it made me feel so important and so revered. And like the, the romantic world was my oyster because it wasn't like, like, love you, babe. I think you're hot. I think you're awesome. It was like, you are my fire, my one desire. So from a messaging standpoint, I do feel followed by the utter, the, the anonymous nature of any girl being able to fit into these lyrics is more insulting than affirming. And what I'm talking about is, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from. 
what you did, as long as you love me. I'm less affirmed as I am. You know, well, okay, I, I guess he just wanted a warm body. Like, <laughs> you just need to be loved. Like, how self-deprecating is that? But they did, you know, follow up with their next album by putting us in the driver's seat and, and asking us more pointed questions to help us assess if they're right for us as opposed to them just being like, you know, I don't I don't care what your vibe is, just like be into me. And they were like, am I original? Am I the only one? Am I sexual? Am I everything you need? You know, better rock your body now. And I was like, yeah, okay. All of the above, A, B, C, and D. I I love the haunted mansion vibes. I love the dance moves from that video. Now worried, I'm getting it confused with larger than life, but I think larger than life is more of like a artificial intelligence robot vibe. I don't know. I love the TRL era. I love Carson Daly. I loved when Eminem took over Times Square with the real Sim Shady. I love when Mariah Carey was acting loopy. I loved to like check out the studio audience and look at their, you know, super sick tube tops and ruffled cotton charlotte russe drawstring skirts i love the idea of a vj i found it really inspiring that like you could be a video jockey there was like hillary who won a like i want to be a vj contest that ultimately ended up acting in one tree hill there was sway there was of course the incomparable dave saying <laughs> he's incomparable i can't remember his name dave uh holmes dave holmes and I remember there's this girl named Ananda because I kept being like, oh, her name looks like Amanda, but it's not. I mean, there was, um, uh, I mean, I feel like the people that got a start on those shows were like Jenny McCarthy, like Carmen Electra. I mean, I know Jenny McCarthy was singled out, but, you know, kind of like the token MTV mega hotties, like Daisy Fuentes. That's when she first got on my radar. There's like downtown Julie Brown in the earlier days or like Dan Cortez, which is a running joke from the Stefan bit on SNL, which I love when Bill Hader describes how John Mulaney would change the script to like mess him up and make him laugh. Cause I think it's really funny when Bill Hader breaks and Dan Cortez is like a big inside joke between the two of them. But I myself don't really remember him that well. There was also Lala Anthony who's still around, still uh, tight with uh, Kim Kardashian. Anyways, again, taking way too long to answer a question. Um, but yeah, I love that era. I think of it so fondly. It's so crazy to think that we couldn't watch the video unless we caught it on TRL. And there's just so some so much, um, it was, there's such a pure time. There's so much suspense. There's so much savoring of things in real time. I couldn't have been distracted if I tried. I mean, I remember like the stress of being called down for dinner and, you know, wanting to finish out the episode. And, you know, I had two choices. I could do what my parents said or I could, you know, play dead or play sick or find a reason to stay parked in front of the TV because if I didn't see Nobody Wants to Be Lonely by Christina Aguilera featuring Ricky Martin, right then and there, I was going to have to wait a full 24 hours. And like, that, that, is, that was never going to happen. I also loved like how MTV was kind of like the top 40 kind of more, I don't know, teen driven songs, but then like VH1 would have a countdown. They'd be on at the same time, but VH1's music video countdown would be like, number one, a change by Sheryl Crow. And I was like, no, it's not. I mean, those, I mean, they were more like Jel Delilah songs, I guess. Uh, it was very Shell Crow. Like, you know, you'd also see a lot of, like, Foo Fighters, uh, Melissa Etheridge. I Really, I do think VH1 was in cahoots with Lilith Fair. A lot of, uh, a lot of strong female voices on there, which now I support. But at the time, I was a lot less interested in the Indigo Girls. 
But what are you going to do? I Now I can appreciate all of it. But at the time, there was nothing like those super handsome boy bands and slightly effortlessly, almost just sloppily coordinating outfits, lip syncing on that tiny soundstage to screaming 13-year-olds who I could not figure out how they managed to get themselves to Times Square and out of school and away from their parents. But I mean, if you went to a live taping of TRL, please write in to be there, a podcast to be there in five.com. I'd be interested to hear about your experience. I just, I think now when I think about when a, uh, an above 18 musical act has such a strong section of their following as minors, how weird that's got to be. Because like the way you dance and the way your lyrics go and what you're talking about, like evokes something from them and like it's so creepy and even like I feel I feel like Taylor Swift probably wants to have way more mature lyrics but like she'll she she would just always have a young fan base she's a great role model she's really good music it's largely wholesome I'd let my kids listen to it they wanted to go to a concert at a reasonable age and reasonable height I'd let them but like also I kind of want to hear Taylor drop an f-bomb I kind of want to hear sef- sexier songs I want them to mirror her life as she's gotten older, and that's why when she talked about drinking and reputation, I was so incredibly relieved. And obviously, so it goes in dress are more suggestive, but fingers crossed for like a real, a, a real song about getting down. I mean, I, I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. Anyway, I think we have one more question. I will try to wrap it up. <laughs> it's so boring. I'm sorry. We have a couple. I think I have three more voicemails, but I'm gonna kind of save them and backfill them and use them throughout time but this one actually i got via email subject line was hey there delilah love that did you ever watch uh the the dating show ready for love that was supposed to be the new bachelor hosted by juliana and bill rancic in their heyday and the plain white tees who sang hey there delilah uh lead singer matched with a girl who's and they're actually still together and they have two kids and they live in austin they're super cute I think I follow them on my personal Instagram because that's the only one I had back when the show was on. But I always thought he seemed like a really nice, normal guy. But I also feel sad that that was I, I always feel it's like that must be so awesome when you you have a song like that takes off and is so ubiquitous with you. And everybody will sing for the rest of time, like Call Me Maybe. But it bums me out when people can never make, do a comparable hit, you know, like Justin Bieber's could have stopped at baby, 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 baby times 18, but his music's gotten better over time. Whereas Carly Rae Jepsen got a bit stunted. Uh, I'm worried for Lil Nas X. He, he must not have many tricks up his sleeve if he's still, you know, doing like his 15th remix of Old Town Road. Uh, I kind of, I mean, I don't know. It, it's really hard to, to predict who will and who won't thrive. I'm actually like having, I know we all are having a Billie Eilish moment, but I'm having a moment where I'm watching her in interviews and I'm studying her disposition. It's so dark, but it's so um, young. And it's also very, uh, it's, it's this like, it's this paradox of maturity and youthfulness and lack of know-how, but you feel like she's been around a while and you also feel like, she's hiding something, but she's actually not because her music and music videos and lyrics are so dark. And I'm just kind of obsessed with her vibe. And what I want, like my young daughter using her as like a role model, like maybe not just because everything she does looks like Samara from the ring. But I also 
appreciate that she's open about her emotional state. I love how close she is with her mom and brother. Love that she's original, writes her own music. She whispers sings. I, uh, yeah, I'm very impressed by her. And I think she's very well-spoken and comes across somewhat jovial in, in interviews, more so than you would think based on her music. But I do worry about her because for, you know, I, I think that fame works better for some than others. And if you've already got the capacity to feel so much and uh, to be a little bit more melancholic than your average person at a young age, and that's when you get famous, I just, you know, I always hope there's a lot of people around keeping keeping them grounded, keeping them balanced and not, you know, it's almost like you don't, I, I would imagine that the fear at the time is like, you want to take advantage of it. Like while the fame's here, while you're hot, strike all the iron's hot. And I, but I think everybody does that. And, you know, but when you think about like a Britney Spears, who I think is like stopped, is, is emotionally stunted and like was so traumatized by her teen idol experience that she like stopped emotionally maturing at like age 17. And I think that like, you know, it's probably weird because yeah, strike while the iron's hot. But if you, if you keep getting hotter and you keep producing great music and get even bigger over time and you never stop, you know what I mean? It's like, you can't always be operating from that place of scarcity. As we talked about earlier, it's like, no, this will, this will be sustainable. Like we will make great hits. Let's focus on balance and well-being and living because how can you write songs without living your own life? And anyway, I don't even know what I'm talking about now. Okay. Back to my email. This says, hey, Kate, love this advice slash Delilah idea. I would like some advice on how to help a friend. I don't want to get into details and I don't want to give her away, away her identity, but she has had some severe marriage, personal health and family issues over the last couple of years. She's not good at coping and has been refusing to go to therapy and get professional help. I have nicely encouraged her to go several times, even going so far as to find a therapist in town with openings and offering to make her appointment and to drive her there myself. I go to therapy for personal reasons, so this isn't me pushing something on her that I know nothing about. Therapy has saved my life and I'm a huge advocate for it. She's still refusing to go and is getting to the point where I don't want to hang out with her anymore because I always end up playing therapist for lack of a better term. And honestly, it is frustrating and exhausting. I feel like that makes me sound selfish, but I just love her and want her to get some real help because she very much needs it. And I don't want to lose her as a friend. What should I do? Thanks for listening. Oh, God love you. I, this is a, this is actually a good question and I don't know that I have a perfect answer for it, but, um, I think it's important to talk about because I do think that this happens a lot in friendships. And I think that there is a fine line between when being a shoulder to cry on, when being a sounding board, when being all of the things that should come with, you know, a friendship. When that turns into emotional labor, it becomes a problem. I mean, not only because you feel like there's an inequity as it relates to the amount of active caring and attention that is being put into both sides of the relationship. It's always, you know, feeling like you don't have the the time or the space to talk about your own life and your own problems because your friend tends to monopolize every discussion with their own problems does not a friendship make, right? There needs to, it needs to be reciprocated. I think every friendship goes through seasons where one person relies on the other I think they ebb and flow. And I think that it's not always going to be 50-50 and that's fine, but it can't be that the person's wholly reliant on you and that there's no space for any of your own things going on in your life. But beyond that, also, 
it's there's an an added level of intensity when the situation's largely private because i think when you're a person that processes information you know either using your own sounding board or getting outside perspectives or whatever there's this added intensity of of when you can't really talk to anybody about it and if it's a case where like you're the sole confidant i mean that's already case in point like you're being over relied upon because that that's that's what i mean by emotional labor when does supportive bleed into burdensome? You know, somebody can lean on you, but to carry them on your back is is cumbersome and it's not sustainable and you'll only end up resenting them. And a person who is at a, a place with that kind of um, emotional instability or, or whatever difficulties going on in their life, the last thing they need is for their prime confidant to begin to resent them. And I think that well, this is kind of, um, I'll try to keep it brief, but I feel like it's kind of multifaceted because I think the first thing that everybody, regardless of what stage you're in, needs to think about when somebody's coming to you with something is I think it's important to remember that people aren't always looking for a fixer. People aren't always looking for a solution. Most of the time people don't, they, they, they don't want a mirror. They, they want just compassion. They want a hug. They want to go get a meal. They want to talk more, text more, you know, it's, it's, they want concern and care, but you can't jump in and take over their life. You can't fix everything. And I think sometimes we put the pressure on ourselves to make everything right. And it's adding to the, to the detention and the difficulty of it all. And sometimes I think that even the, the supportive friend can have a bit of a martyr complex. And even the person maybe isn't even asking you to feel all this stress and isn't asking you to fix anything, but you take it on because you care. And I do think we need to like, for a second at times be like, what is this person asking of me? Can I be realistic about what I can provide? And at what point is it going to be too consuming for me to be involved? Because, you know, if you care too much, like God bless you. But I do think it's important to realize that we need to set boundaries with friendships just as much as we do with romantic and familial relationships because things if, if things get too one-sided, if they get off balance, it can be very, very hard to reverse that dynamic. And as I always say, and everyone always says, you can't go back from resentment. My my entire relationship like strategy for any like friendship, whatever I have, is like if I if it even starts to teeter into resentment, that's when I will go in course correct, try to figure it out, sort it out. Because if you're being a martyr and you're doing something you don't want to be doing for somebody else, you can't hold that against them unless you know that's exactly what they want. And if they exactly want something that completely opposes anything you can provide, believe in, whatever, then the friendship itself needs to be evaluated. But what you don't need to do is stay in it despite harboring like a lifelong resentment for the person for making them do something you don't want to do. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's where resentment's tricky because so often it's because we're trying to make other people happy, but you're the one who ultimately made that choice. But anyway, I digress. So I think that you first have to be like, what are they asking of me? Do they need somebody to lean on or do they need somebody to fix this? And beyond that, if there seems to be a reliance on your input and advice and it's it's a lot of energy on your part to like try to help them reach a solution that they're never willing to accept. I think you almost have to like turn it back on them. And if you're going, if you're going over the same things over and over and over, it's actually, it's actually called co-rumination and it's a process where 
if you're repeatedly discussing the same things over and over and not coming up with a new solution and not moving forward whatsoever, it actually increases anxiety, it increases depression, and increase, it increases those negative emotional symptoms that you're trying to correct for by hashing out things with your girlfriends. But when you're ruminating over them and not moving forward, it can make them much, much worse. And I think sometimes, you know, sorry, my phone, um, trying to come from a place of even, uh, you know, you don't want to like be condescending with like psychological talk, but that it's a thing too, where you're getting dragged into it and you're probably getting dragged down. And I think almost being like, you know, it's so hard for me. Like, I know how unhappy you are, but it's also so hard for me as somebody who loves you to hear you this unhappy. And I feel like uh, at this point, I'm not being helpful because nothing's changing. And I care about you so much that now starting to see myself as part of the problem, I feel like we need to change something because we're just mulling over the same things over and over and it's making it worse. And if you want to bring up the concept of co-rumination or whatever, do it. Or you can say your therapist told you about it or something. And um, you kind of, I don't know, by being like, I know you're unhappy. I understand. Seeing you unhappy is making me unhappy in us having the same conversation over and over with no solution, I realize that I'm actually making it worse when you want me to make it better. And I think sometimes by taking the responsibility on yourself as a supporter, even if it does, even if you feel like, you know, you really don't owe them anything at this point, I think in this type of situation, clearly there's, there's something so broken beyond repair that they're just not in a place where they're thinking rationally enough to be able to read your mind about your needs as a friend. They're just very consumed by their own problems. And I think instead of being on the offense and kind of saying, you're doing this, you're doing that, it's not getting better. If you can kind of turn it around and be like, I like, I want, I, I feel badly that I'm not able to help you. And that when you come to me, we're not making progress and we need to find a solution. So talking to me about it as it is now doesn't appear to be the best thing these are the things I think you should do X, Y, and Z. If that's not the direction you want to go in, if you fundamentally disagree with my input, that is totally fine, but my input's not going to change. And I still firmly believe this is what, you know, you would really benefit from. So until we can figure out how to move forward, I don't think that I'm the best person to be leaning on for advice. And I just think that, you know, I know that's easier said than done, but I, I don't know. I just think there's something very, um, it, 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 to hold yourself accountable for being as supportive as you can be when the other person's not able to see that it's happening and just saying that I don't feel like our conversations are helpful and I want to do my best to be a good friend, but th this isn't fair to either of us because I'm sad that you're sad. And then we get both get sadder talking about it. And if you're not willing to fix it, it's only going to get worse. And it, I'm in pain seeing you in pain. So like, tell me what to do here. What's our next step? Who else can you talk to? And I think the thing with therapy too is like, we, you have to remember we all have our own comfort levels with mental health, with therapy, with, I mean, you know, you just never know. Like a, I know a lot of people that I've come across that are more, uncomfortable or opposed to therapy were like forced into it when they were really young because of, it was court mandated from a divorce or they have associations with like a particular person who was mentally unwell and they kind of stereotype 
any sort of mental health issue to be like, you're crazy and don't, they'll trivialize things like, you know, depression or marital issues or whatever. Um, there's, there's so many different places you can be coming from that make you opposed to therapy. And I think that you can't discount, uh, the emotional vulnerability, like how, how there are such different, there's such a range of it and how hard it is for some people to, to emote, to open up relative to others. And when it's easy for you, you're kind of like, go talk to somebody. Like, how hard is it to talk? Like, they can't tell anybody it's confidential. Like, it it just seems like kind of a no brainer. Um, But what a lot of people don't realize is like, it's, it's not just, it's not about being crazy. And it's not about having to rehash everything. Like, yeah, you do have to go into a lot of it, but it's about tools. It's about coping. It's not lying on a couch and, you know, just talking to somebody about your problems. It's actually, you know, behavioral therapy is about getting action items and steps and getting like emotional homework to figure out how to move forward more effectively. And not, it doesn't necessarily always correct some of the mental health issues you have, but it teaches you how to work around them and to live with them in a way that's healthy and not consuming. And I just think until people have a professional staring them in the face and telling them like, what you're feeling is real, what you're feeling is not your fault, what you're feeling is not under your control, and you cannot think your way out of mental illness. But, you know, obviously, if you're into therapy, you know that. But I guess what I've found in life is that I, the, I forget in a, in a situation that I feel like is impossible or kind of at a standstill, and I feel like the person's being stubborn, what I don't do often enough is stop talking and giving opinions and just start asking questions. Because even um, in a past corporate role when I was a black belt and did like business process improvement. And I know I've talked about this before, but the most important thing that I've carried with me through life is, is the concept of root cause analysis, which are essentially different tools to, you know, not focus on the symptoms, but get to the root cause. An example of that I always use is there was a case where this um, computer program was incredibly slow in getting the client their reports. And it was taking way too long to redo the entire system to make it more, to make it faster was going to be like thousands of dollars and years and all these, you know, resources that did not exist. But when you looked at the process and broke it down and timed it step by step, uh, you realized that their computers were taking 10 plus minutes to start up in the morning. And by eliminating that one piece of it, the reports actually would get out on time and the system was working fine. It's just that there were other things on this like ancillary things that were slowing them down and they blamed the shiniest thing the most obvious thing the most difficult thing to change on the problem when really there was other things that were influencing the problem that nobody had taken time to separate and I think that you only find out those things when you ask questions because so often arguments fights like things just aren't about what they're about and um when uh in the job I had, and I know a lot of people use this, it's pretty, it's pretty well known. It's called the five whys. And basically, it's just like an interrogative technique where you find an underlying problem, or the root cause rather by repeating the question why over and over and typically five times is what we do in a business sense, but you're really trying to explore the cause and effect of what they're doing. And I think that like it, 
you know, obviously you don't have to ask why five times or do it in this format, but I, I think about this often because it reminds me that when I'm asking somebody if they did something and I feel like I'm getting excuses instead of to respond to the excuse or to accept it and to not, you know, show any sentiment, like, you know, the sentiment one way or the other of my reaction and just keep asking why it ultimately will often drill down to the root of it. Because like, did you reach out to a therapist and they say no, at first they might be like, well, I was busy or well, I didn't know how. And then you're like, well, I gave you some, why didn't you call those? And then they're like, uh, they can't say I was busy or I didn't have anything and they're going to have to answer. And it's probably like, well, I don't feel like it or I don't believe in therapy. And it's like, why don't you believe in therapy? And then it's like, because, uh, you know, I had to go when I was a kid and I had a bad experience or it makes me feel crazy or I have a family member who is mentally ill and I don't want to be like them or whatever. It's like the more questions you add, the more you try to uh, neutrally disassemble excuses without the person realizing you're doing it that's when you have breakthroughs. And I just think people give their advice so much and don't ask enough questions. And um, at least for me, especially in the event, you know, the situation is confidential and in in a situation where there aren't a lot of other people involved and you need to make sure the person is getting to a positive solution or outcome, it's actually even more important to not give your opinion and to not give targeted advice because – for some people, they just let in one ear out the other and they'll come back and it'll be, you know, a hamster wheel. But for others, you give them advice they don't want to hear. They start to, you're going to get booted from the discussion because if they don't take your advice, they're not going to be coming to you anymore because they'll feel badly about asking for advice you're not taking. They'll feel judged. I think that this happens a lot with women who have, I've noticed throughout life, who have relationship problems. They tell you their feelings and then the person unloads like, oh, I actually never liked him or like, you need to leave or you need to do this. And then when they don't, you know, they probably feel like you're losing respect for them. They feel like they can't come to you because you've already, you know, stated your piece of what you want them to do. And long story short, I just think more often than not, the important part is to stay involved, to, to set boundaries, but of, you know, I'm not being helpful, let's work toward a solution together. But at the same time, you know, keep staying involved to a level where you know what's going on, you can, you know, look out for their safety and well-being, and then you can ask follow-up questions that propel them into motion. Because, yeah, you might feel annoying, but after a while, they're going to have to answer it. It's how, like, interrogations work, and it doesn't have to feel like that. But that way you keep them honest. And when you're asking people a series of questions, they reach their own conclusions because nine times out of 10, the person already knows what they want to do and they just need to hear someone else or themselves say it. And it's pretty unlikely that you're going to say their exact right thing that they want to hear that's going to help them move forward. So you need to do everything in your power to get them to say it themselves. And the best way to get there is typically by asking a lot of questions and not in an annoying way, in a compassionate way, not maybe an all-in-one swoop. But I just have always tried to do that when I want somebody to, you know, I want to stay in somebody's corner. I don't want to get kicked out of the discussion because I feel like they need support, but I don't really know the right answer because I'm not in the situation. All you need to do is make sure that they reach their own conclusion and or called out on the excuses they're making because they might not even see it that way. You know, we're all such creatures of habits and it can be really hard in a, in a dark, you know, emotional, traumatic situation you can't rationalize when people are feeling irrationally 
And all you can do is to extract as many genuine thoughts that they have from their own mind. And when they hear themselves talk and they put it to words or put pen to paper, things become so much more clear. And granted, it's not your job to be their therapist. Um, but that's just kind of my advice in terms of how to have more productive conversations if a person won't go to therapy. I also think you have to remember that that there's just different levels of comfort with it and they might not go and it's not a personal attack on you or your advice, but, um, you know, you're, we're adults. Like that's, what's so hard about friendships is like, if they are just completely, you know, woe is me wallowing, can't be helped. There's literally nothing that can be done and they have to ultimately help themselves. But I think that there's a way that you can stay involved without completely, um, you know, giving them the cold shoulder or completely dipping out, completely cutting them off because it's the last thing that's needed. You know, I don't know if any of that was helpful. I guess long story short, I think it's helpful to set boundaries, but you can set them by putting it on yourself and be by being like, I'm not helping you. I feel horrible. Like, help me help you. What do you need here? Clearly everything I've set up until this point hasn't been the right thing. Cause you know, you haven't moved forward with any of it. I'm not changing. I'm going to start repeating myself. So what can we do to make this situation better for both of us? And how can I be more helpful going forward? Even, but even before that, if you feel like you're not at your last straw and you're just kind of like, what's up? Like you don't, they want, you don't want them to feel like they're being passed off to a therapist because you can't hear their problems anymore, but you know, make it more, make your conversations more about getting to root causes, isolating out symptoms and trying to focus on them reaching their own conclusions so you're not just on autopilot and repeating yourself all the time. And, you know, you just never know what will come out of it. I think it's just important to remember, too, that not all friendships need to be everything to us. And different friendships serve different purposes. And I feel like I have some where they rely on me more. And then I have some where I rely on them more. And I think we all have different relationships for different meaning reasons. And I'm not like a big cut person that cuts people off or whatever. But I do think that, like, there's a way you can manage it from your standpoint without hurting anyone's feelings. But also being okay with that, it, it might, this friendship might not be what you need and it might not support you in the way you need, but that's okay. You can just try to let it be a lot less consuming and support them in the way that you can. But when it gets to be too much, it gets to be burdensome, it gets to be emotional labor is when you stop and is when you say this isn't helpful. And when, you know, you kind of slowly try to transition to a more sustainable friendship dynamic. But, you know, I, I think that, like, it's easy to get mad and to get frustrated, but that's, like, the last thing people need sometimes. And as much as you can be a soft place to land and not and focus less on the person taking your advice and more so focus on just being a person that listens to them, asks them questions, and checks in on them, sometimes that's all people need. And sometimes that's all you can do till they ultimately reach their own conclusions, whether it's the one you want them to get to or not they're you know she's a she or he is a grown-ass person and you can't prevent that but by doing everything in your power to help them reach the right decision for them you can never say you didn't try they can never say you were a bad friend and you will never have led them astray because the best friends don't push their own agenda on a person the best friends help the person sort out their feelings in a way that allows them to reach their own conclusions with a lot more clarity by being in a judgment-free context where the person's able to open up and from there you can hold them accountable but I know what you mean with like those discussions you have five million times and you're just like at this it's, at a point it starts to feel offensive that they're not even listening to you but it's just it's not about you it's not about that 
and it, um, you know, it's, it's, these things are complicated. They're complicated and I could ramble, but anyway, I totally understand. It's not straightforward. And I know that was like a lot of random information, but I don't know. You're a nice person by even caring and writing in. And, uh, I think that the hard part about life is like realizing we're not managers, we're consultants. And unfortunately, or fortunately, people are in total control of their own lives and we can care and we can put all the energy and thought into it we want. But at the end of the day, they're the ones that have to help themselves. And it's kind of why a lot of times like addicts and uh, the, the, the literature will tell you like they just like you have to let them hit rock bottom like you can't enable I do think there's an element of enabling with emotional relationships when, you know, the the tough love that comes with like your advice and telling them what they need to do isn't the right tough love. The tough love needs to be uh, putting the accountability back on them to make their own decisions, stand by it and find an element of gumption to move forward with it. And I think it's so easy just to be frustrated for yourself when you've been carrying that burden for so long. But you know, assuming you'll go through a point in life where you probably need that sort of friend, try to imagine what you would be needing on the receiving end and do more of it really is all I think you can do. But anyways, I hope that was semi-helpful. I appreciate you asking. I don't, again, I feel like ill-equipped. I'm not Delilah. I, I Delilah would be a lot harder on your friend. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I, I always just am too worried that people are like too fragile and uh, don't need to be like cut off or tough love. Tough love does not work for me. Like I do not want a trainer. I do not want to go to a boot camp. I want to, I love, I like some people want somebody like breathing down their neck, telling them to push harder, work harder. They're not going fast enough. Da, da, da. And some people like me like yoga where they're like, it's your time. It's your practice. If you want to go in child's pose, just heal over and die. Or you can power through. I, I want options. I want healing. I want soothing. I want compassion. And we're all different. And uh, it just, you know, it just depends. But also, if, if take care of yourself. And if it's really impeding on your life, your family, your work, whatever, like do set hard and fast boundaries. I, I hope I was clear about that. But like there is a way to do it that makes it not like you're a horrible burden, but more like I'm, I'm a part of the problem. If, I'm, if I've been involved in this for a while and I'm not helping there has to be somebody else that can help you more than I can because God knows I want to so bad, you know? But anyway, love you tons. Thanks for calling, well, emailing. But anyway, okay, now this is way too long. I gotta go. I don't even have time to listen back to this. I'm very nervous, but I hope you guys like this episode. Um, Part two, technically, I'll record this week's when I can, when something exciting happens, when a deep dive is to be had. I'm working on a lot of different deep dives that I'm excited about. And uh, yeah, as always, rate, subscribe, review, call the hotline 312-379-9676. Anytime, always open 24-7. Jokingly said I'm going to pick up sometimes, but I won't. If that scares you, please don't let it <laughs> deter you. Um, and email podcast at be there in 5com if you don't want to have your name uh, attached to it or your voice rather. And um, go to patreon.com slash be there in 5 to support the podcast. And yeah, I hope everybody has a great week. What a weird amalgam of questions from Backstreet Boys to Bachelor to breakups to friendships. I mean, we really covered a lot of ground here for a half episode. Oh, LOL, at half episode. N- never, never existed here at the Be There in Five podcast. But that's why I love you, because you're here for the, the long form, the rambling, and for the company. So 
if anybody else has any input or help for any of these people, please write in. Let me know. I'll, I'll share it, whether on Patreon or in the Facebook group or otherwise. Join me there in 5 Totally Casual Breezy Facebook group. And um, until next time, as always, let me know your thoughts and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. time that you came back for good.